tonight, as I shared with you, if you remember our very first study here in the book of Daniel, I said something to you that you're probably now beginning to understand, that without the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation would be nearly impossible to understand. And in fact, Jesus himself is quoted in both Matthew and Mark's gospel in the record of the Olivet Discourse, talking about the chapter that we are in right now, speaking of the abomination of the desolation written about by the prophet Daniel. Jesus quotes it. So we know Jesus believed about these passages that they had to do with exactly what they say. And as we pick up and finish chapter 11 tonight in verse 40, and as we go on and finish the book next week, chapter 12, notice verse 40, what it says, at the time of, very important, circle it, the end. Only place in Scripture that this particular wording is found. The end. In other words, the actual end. The last days. Not the last days as in what we're in now leading up into the very last days. Not leading up to the end. This chapter and the rest of chapter 12 points us towards a time that's yet future. And given what happened today in between Israel and Syria that day may not be too terribly far in the distant future. Keep this in view. Because a lot of people, as they look at these chapters, and if you spiritualize them, you simply take them and say, the world has always had wars and rumors of wars. The world has always had pestilence. The world has always had fighting. There have always been people who have risen up and seemingly been more evil than the last guy. If you spiritualize these things to say that this is the condition of humankind, has always been and will always be, then you have to plainly deny what verse 40 says, which this pertains to a very specific point in time, which has not yet come about at the time of the end. In other words, when the world's clock is just about done insofar as the Lord is concerned and he will pour out finally to deal with sin, finally to deal with rebellion, once and for all he's going to pour out his wrath upon this earth. You don't want to be here for that. That is why these chapters are here. They're supposed to scare the daylights out of you. They are supposed to be so horrific that when you read them, you're going, I I don't want to be a part of that, nor do I want anyone else on earth to be a part of that. And because you know the answer, and his name is Jesus, you go out and seek to win others to Christ. Because if you believe these words are true, and I do, and I believe most of you do, then you're obligated to take them and go do something with them. Because when I see what's going on in the Middle East, when I look at the goings-on that are now in Egypt, and if you remember a year ago, I reminded you that this was not a good thing, that the president of Egypt was now a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, and it wasn't as as benign as everybody was saying. It was certainly was not as benign as our president made it out to be, and he's now shown his true colors you're going to see that that alliance between Egypt and Syria was prophesied by Daniel. That it's not something that Jeff concocted in his head. It's not something that Fox News put together because they're anti-basically everybody. Your Bible says that in the last days there's going to be an allegiance, an alliance between Syria and Egypt. They are going to come together for the common purpose of trying to defeat a single world ruler, you know him as the Antichrist, and that battle will be fought over Israel where he will be headquartered at the time. 
You guys know the end of the story. You've probably all seen that bumper sticker. I know how it ends. Don't ignore what you know. Now's the time to share with people. Look at, hey man, did you see that article about Syria today? Tell them about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our study tonight. Father, we come and we just rest in you. God, it's so amazing that the one who created the universe and everything in it loves us so much that you would share with us the things that will happen in the very last days before they ever occur. Lord, because you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, your heart towards mankind is to save and to redeem and to bless. And Lord, we pray that as we study tonight that we'd be encouraged and strengthened and built up, that our lives would be transformed as we hear your word. Lord, help us gaze in wonder at the headlines and help us to be busy about winning souls to Christ. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask now that you would simply speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 40, Daniel chapter 11. We'll simply finish the chapter tonight. Very important six verses that we have before us. At the time of the end, and now we're going to move on to what I believe is clearly because of what Jesus says about what has just happened, which is someday there will be one who will come and really make the abomination of desolation that the prophet Daniel spoke about. And if Jesus, unless he was crazy, he wouldn't say that it was to come if it had already happened under Antiochus Epiphanes. And so what Antiochus Epiphanes did was simply a prefigurement, a type, a picture, something that we can look back on and say it is going to be about the nation Israel, it is going to involve the temple of God in Israel, there is going to be a world ruler who is going to set himself up to be worshipped in that temple, and he is going to desecrate that temple. So we are looking now ahead to at the time of the end. Being as we're still here, that couldn't have happened yet. Amen? So it has to still be future. Otherwise, we'd all be up in heaven talking about this, and we're here. If this is heaven, we're all in trouble. <laughs> Love running springs, but not heaven, okay? And so we already know who these players are that are going to be now mentioned. At the time of the end, the king of the south... That would be the king of Egypt. Amen? So at the time of the end, a time that is future, a time that is after the abomination of desolation that was spoken of and prefigured in Daniel's time under Antiochus Epiphanes, it's going to happen again. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Who's him? We saw him last time. That would be the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to be the world ruler. So I want you to get a very clear picture here. Because the beginning of the tribulation of days, because the great tribulation, which is the last three and a half years, this world ruler that comes on the scene sets him up to self to be worshipped. He creates a one world government, one world monetary system, and he creates a one world religion. This guy who sets himself up to look like he is an absolute friend of, guess who, the Jewish people, that would be the reason that the king of the south comes and attacks the Antichrist, because he's going to appear to be friendly to the Jews. And so it says, Egypt, the king of Egypt, the ruler of Egypt at the time shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Interestingly enough that the north spoken of at this time extended as far as Leningrad, Russia. And so this is a distance that probably includes most of modern-day Europe. And so now you have 
those who were aligned with Egypt and those who are aligned with Russia have actually come against the Antichrist. And we're going to see why in the next few verses. They are actually going to turn, if you will, against the Antichrist himself. The north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. Remember that when this was written 2,500 years ago, uh, there were no helicopters, there were no aircraft carriers, there were no F-15s, F-16s, JF-22, anythings. There were no Raptors, there were no Apaches, there were no Abrams tanks. The only reference point that they would have had at that time that would have made sense was to name the pieces of warfare that were most commonly used were the swiftest and the most deadly. And that's all this is. And so it's saying that this group from the north will come with swiftness, with a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. That would be the big guns of the day. And so as we look out into time, of course this means a modern army, extremely well equipped, able to move very precipitously upon an enemy, likely with nuclear weapons and all of those things. And the reason we're going to know that is we are going to look at what this references in the book of Revelation. And so as this battle unfolds, it's going to unfold over a specific place because the Antichrist shall enter the country and overwhelm them. In other words, it says, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. And so the Antichrist, headquartered in Jerusalem with his entourage, will in essence begin to turn his back on the Jewish people because he's now going to reach out and touch the rest of the world. It's going to be a very deadly time of warfare in the Middle East. And he says, And he shall also enter the glorious land. The glorious land, or the uh, beautiful land, if you might have that in your translation, is simply a reference to modern-day Israel. This is the homeland of the Jewish people. And so he was headquartered in Jerusalem, seemed to keep his worldwide empire basically headquartered there. He really wasn't going out and meeting the common folk. Now he goes into the land. And many countries shall be overthrown. So he's going to go out from Jerusalem into much of the known world at the time. And he is going to make war against basically everybody. And those countries shall be overthrown. But notice who will escape. Very, very important, because we saw this in the book of Ezekiel. But these shall escape from his hand. So who escapes from the hand of the Antichrist? A very, very small country directly to the east of modern-day Israel, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. That would be modern-day Jordan also the location of the rock city of Petra. And so the Antichrist now goes out against the world. Somehow, miraculously, he is actually attacked by Russia, whom in the battle of Gog, Magog, comes and attacks Israel. Israel is protected and somehow spared. Now we find that the Antichrist is immensely enraged. And he, in essence, declares war on the rest of the world. And he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. And so now Egypt is going to pay the price for its treachery in coming against the Antichrist. It's strange, because when you think about it, that almost makes Egypt an ally of the Jewish people, does it not? Your Bible also says in the book of Isaiah that in the last day, Egypt... Assyria and Israel shall be as one. So there will be a time when what we see now in the Middle East will reverse itself. The Egyptian people will as they once were. Most people don't know this, but Egypt at one time was largely a Christian nation. Christian area of the world. Coptic Christians 
overwhelming majority for over a hundred years. That is going to happen, my guess is again, and the reason it's going to happen is they, like Israel, will likely see the Messiah. They'll get it. You know, people aren't so stupid as we think sometimes when atomic bombs are dropping and somehow miraculously this little tiny country called Israel is spared and the Jewish people are spared. And you have 144,000 Jewish evangelists who seem to be relatively untouchable now sharing the gospel and not able to be killed and are miraculously hidden by the Lord. I'm thinking other people are going to take notice of that. And the ones who will take the most notice are the ones who have fought them time and time and time and time again and gotten whooped. That would be Egypt. They've attacked them two times previously in open warfare and been defeated very swiftly both times. That is one of the reasons that is utter nonsense that our president is currently still undertaking the arming of Egypt. And he's now announced, not in addition to the 20 F-16s that I already told you about, he's now also authorized them to get almost a billion dollars worth of M1A1 Abrams tanks, 200 of them. That would give them a, a, a basically a mobile army that could come across the, the southern border of Israel in a rather quick fashion, protected by those F-16s, and actually be able to, to match forces, if you will, with the Israeli Air Force and with the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, the ground units. So the stage is being set for this battle now. As we sit here tonight. But he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. For he, again, being the Antichrist, the only reason it's capitalized here, it's the beginning of a sentence. He shall have power over the treasures of silver and gold. What happens in the last days according to the book of Revelation? There is a one world monetary system that is so pervasive that without the mark of the beast, you cannot buy nor sell, that a loaf of bread is worth gold and silver. And so the Antichrist, this is simply making reference to what the book of Revelation further elaborates on, and then in the very last days, you will either bow to the Antichrist or you will have zero financial ability to take care of yourself. She'll have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt, all of the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. So the rest of Africa, in essence, comes to the side of the Antichrist. They see what happens to Egypt. They say, not us. We're going to join forces. So now you have a battle that encompasses roughly one-third of the surface of the world. And so the enemy, the Antichrist, and his forces are coming against two principal armies, which would be likely Russia heading from the north, Egypt from the south. The African nations say Egypt is out of their mind. They're trying to come against the Antichrist. Russia is out of its mind. Who knows where the U.S. is at this point in time? Because the church has gone home to be with Jesus. We're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so I don't know who's running the U.S., um, I guarantee it's not going to be one of us. But now notice what happens in verse 44. Very powerful passage of Scripture. Because it alludes to, and I'll share these verses with you in a moment. But the news from the east and the north shall trouble him, shall trouble the Antichrist. Well, we know about the East and the North, and we're going to look at that in a moment, because there are some big dealings, especially with the East and especially with the North, with regard to what the Antichrist is trying to do. This is a good place for us to interject, and you must remember when you think about the Antichrist, his boss is Satan, okay? The head guy is still the devil, the accuser of the brethren. He is the one running the show from behind the scenes. He has given power to the Antichrist, but the Antichrist is not all-powerful. He is simply very powerful. 
He's not all-powerful. He's not. He does not have power over the entire earth. His power is limited, just as Satan's power is limited. And so as these armies come into view, we have to also see that behind the scenes, God hasn't lost his sovereignty. Because you could look at these passages and go, man, why doesn't God step in and do something? Because God is stepping in and doing things. And in fact, the fact that eventually Egypt and Assyria, which would be modern-day Iraq and Iran, and that whole area of the world that once was against Israel, is going to now come to their aid, you can see the whole picture shaping up. So what happens if Israel wins a decisive battle against Iran over their nuclear programs? What happens if those tanks and those warplanes that we're currently giving to Egypt don't do the job, and as has always happened since Israel became a nation, Israel defeats the Egyptian army? The whole world is going to be going, I think I'm going to join sides with the Jews, because they seem to be winning. There's a couple of armies still left in the world. Army of the North, and one that we know about from the book of the Re- book of Revelation, the Army of the East. And so the Antichrist gets news from the East and from the North, and it troubles him. Yeah, I'm guessing so. And therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Basically, he now unleashes the forces of hell on the earth. He says, this is it. This is the last chance. He started as a political ruler and a man of peace, so much so that he won a covenant. Remember, we saw that with the nation Israel. He said, I'm going to make a covenant of peace with you. And for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, it's largely a political treaty that engulfs the world, that brings peace to most of the world. And then in the middle... He says, and oh, by the way, we're going to take this one step further. You now all have to worship me. And oh, by the way, we're going to take this one step further. I'm now the ruler of the known world. And some people are probably going to object to that. And so, he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Interesting. Guess what city lies between the seas? That would be the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean and the glorious mountain, which would be Mount Zion. Uh, That would happen to be one city you know of well. It is Jerusalem. And so he shall plant the tents of his palace. And again, keep these things in context. Because we know when this is, it's at the time of the end, the very end, the last days of mankind being on this earth in sin and rebellion. It lies still future. And so when this was written, tents were where the leaders hung out. Amen? So I don't know whether this is uh, airborne, you know, some type of office module. I don't know if it's a bunker. People have speculated as to what these tents are. I can tell you this. It's not going to be a Coleman. He's not going to be the Antichrist. is not going to be up on the Temple Mount in a tent. Talking on his cell phone. Searching, you know, his iPad or something. This will be his headquarters. Wherever his palace is. It's going to be in the vicinity of the glorious mountain, Mount Zion, which would put him on the Temple Mount, highly likely in some type of fortified uh, bunker situation. Between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. He's going to finally be killed and get his due. And so this prophecy begins in the middle of the tribulation, the second three and a half years. The willful king is going to invade the beautiful land. If you turn over to Revelation 12, you'll see this picking up in verse 13. And now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle with which she might fly into the wilderness place where she nourished for a time and times and a half from the presence of the serpent. And so in the last three and a half years, the woman, 
This happens to be a, a picture of the nation Israel. A great eagle will sweep up the Jewish people and take them and protect them supernaturally for the last two, last three and a half years uh, of the tribulation. And so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. And so here, in essence, Satan unleashes everything he's got to try and kill the Jewish people. They are miraculously swept away uh, off into the land uh, that is described for us here as Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And the earth helped the woman. And it's interesting, it says the earth. And it gives us kind of a picture that however they're going to be helped, it's going to be something that we would look at it and go, wow, this is a geographic location that's been helpful. And before I say one more word, let's be very clear here and let's understand this has to be supernatural protection because no amount of hiding in the rock city of Petra is going to keep you from having smart bombs flown right through your front door. So it has to be God, but I do believe that the place that they'll be located is exactly what is described here, which will be in modern-day Jordan and likely in the rock city of Petra or in that region. And so the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Christ. And so the Antichrist, empowered by Satan, is unable to kill and destroy the Jewish people whom by now uh, have understood very clearly that this whole time, according to the book of Joel, is all about them and, and the forces of hell are unleashed on them. And so they now become the object of Satan's wrath. Just as Satan attempted to wipe out Jesus, so he is going to attempt to wipe out the very last vestige of the Jewish people. There will be war like we have never seen in the Middle East. Egypt will definitely lose this one. The king of the south, Egypt, the king of the north, likely will at least be Syria, may well even be aided by Russia. And, and I think that it's highly likely that it's all of Russia and Syria and most of that region of the world. And here's why I say that. They are already going to have seen that the Jewish people, as small as they are in number, take note that if every man, woman, and child who lives in the land of Israel, who is a Jew today, took place and joined the army, they would barely muster 8 million people. There are that many in Cairo alone. So it is very important to understand that this is a time of miraculous intervention by the hand of the Lord to spare the Jewish people. It's the same thing that we saw in a small measure when he allowed them to defeat the Egyptians the first time in the 67 war and then in the 72 war and still protects them to this day. And so the Jewish people... Uh, apparently completely baffling the world with their military prowess, which is attributable to none other than the Lord himself. Interesting that this shows a picture really of all the nations that are surrounding the Black Sea. And if you've read recently of some of the things that Russia has tried to do, Russia used to hold a, an entire fleet of ships in the Black Sea. Uh, they have since moved those ships from the Black Sea through the Bosphorus and put them in the, tort, uh, the port of Tarsus uh, in Lebanon. And so Russia's already moving that direction. They have been for almost 10 years now. It's also interesting that in 1958, Egypt and Syria, on February 1st, this will be this Friday, would be the anniversary of it, an allegiance between, these, between those two nations uh, that was the United Arab Republic. And they said, we're going to stick together if all the rest of the Arab nations uh, fall apart. Is it possible that those two nations, once again, will make an alliance, uh, at least temporarily? I think it's highly likely. Because the Saudis don't want anything to do with them. Iran is a rogue nation that, in essence, wants the world for itself. Could be very likely, because right now Syria is falling apart. They massacred 65 people. They tied their hands behind their backs and shot them in the head yesterday. That's the president's doing of Syria. This guy's a madman. Israel's not going to stand for it. And so, today, 
because they were sending a convoy of trucks into southern Lebanon with SA-18 SAM missiles, which are capable of shooting down the most sophisticated aircraft in the world. Israel said, oh, no, you're not. And they scrambled fighter jets and blew that convoy to bits in Syria. In Syria. That's an act of war, by the way. Guarantee of, you know, if Canada decided they were going to, you know, send a couple of fighter jets across the border of the United States and strike at some convoy on our soil, there would be a war that would ensue afterwards. So make, make no mistake, it's a volatile region of the world. It says that Edom, Moab, and Ammon, modern-day Jordan, are going to be delivered uh, from the hands of this willful king who will be the Antichrist who's going to come against these people. Uh, in, in Revelation chapter 12, it, it talks about this uh, time, and I, I believe that what ultimately happens is because of the 144,000 that are saved, they're converted. There's there's this group out of every tongue and tribe, 12,000 from each, and so you have this picture of this evangelistic force that's going throughout the Middle East, winning people to Christ. That's not what the Antichrist wants to have happen, because he set himself up to be worshipped. And so this is the most direct affront to him. And so naturally he's going to come against uh, the Jewish evangelists, if you will. And so according to Revelation 12 that we just looked at, uh, Israel is going to be spared. Uh, Ultimately, I think that that will include some converts that are now actually, these are Christians largely, uh, that that have now uh, come to Christ during that time. And as they uh, are miraculously protected, the Antichrist is just going to go ballistic. The Israelis are going to flee and, and spend that time there. And as the drama unfolds, notice this, the willful king going to invade basically that region of the world. He's been kind of quiet for three and a half years. His true colors are now exposed. And so notice verse 44, but the news from the east and the north shall trouble him. That news is found in Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 16. And it says there, and now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and those that sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow. Interestingly enough, those happened to be the national colors of China. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone. And so... John, as he records these things, gets a picture, I believe, of modern-day warfare. And he sees these things and has a rough time explaining what they are. And so I think what he actually sees is modern-day warfare, and he describes it in the only way that he knows how. And so by these three plagues, and so he's speaking of this time when a third of mankind is going to be wiped out. By these three plagues, a third of mankind is killed by the fire, by the smoke, and the brimstone which comes out of their mouth. So this appears that there is an all-out nuclear war that engages in the Middle East, that encompasses the land of what is modern-day Iraq, probably Iran, uh, Jordan, Syria, that area of the world, as the Chinese army comes and gets to the river Euphrates. Uh, We note in chapter 16, and then the sixth angel poured out in verse 12, it says, His bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water became dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. In other words, the kings of the east come from China, this giant army of 200 million men, which, by the way, China currently has a standing army in excess of 200 million men. They are the only army in the world capable of fielding that kind of of a battlefield force. They come to the river Euphrates, and so the angel pours out his wrath. The river is dried up because there's something you need to know about that particular river. It's only got eight bridges over the whole thing over its entire length. It's the reason that when we attacked Baghdad, one of the things that we attempted to do was secure the bridges over the river Euphrates because without them you can't get across it unless you build pontoon bridges, and they're kind of susceptible to getting blown up. Your Bible says there's going to be news that comes from the east of an army that's rising that's coming towards the Antichrist from the east. The Antichrist is going to hear this and be dismayed. And then they gathered the kings together. Notice that it says in verse 16 of chapter 16, 
they gathered them together in a place called in Hebrew, Har-Magedio, Armageddon. And so all of this posturing and all of this political wrangling and the maneuverings of the kings of the south and the kings of the north and the kings of the east, the Antichrist himself, the miraculous protection of the Jewish people as they have been watched over by a beloved God who has, a, has the desire to preserve them and see them uh, come to Christ. This is why the book of Joel says what it says that I will bring them into the valley of Megiddo for the land of decision, for what they have done with regard to my land, speaking of the Lord's land, and my people, the children of Israel. So the whole focus of the battle of Armageddon, Daniel says, Revelation says, Ezekiel says, and Joel says, is for the purpose of God redeeming Israel. The Antichrist doesn't want that to happen. Satan doesn't want that to happen. And so what is going to transpire is the greatest battle that humankind has ever seen. We all know it as the Battle of Armageddon. It's on the plain of Escadrillion. Uh, it's famous for a couple of other battles. Uh, Barak defeated the Canaanites there and Gideon over the Midianites. Those two disasters resulted uh, in the deaths of Saul and Josiah, the great kings of Israel. And so previous to this time, when Israel had gone into the battle of Armageddon or into a battle in Armageddon, the valley of Jezreel, when they had gone there, they had lost. And so this is a fearful time for the Jewish people. They've never won a battle in that valley. They've always been defeated in that valley. They've never trusted the Lord in that valley. Remember Saul's picture there. They've always trusted in themselves. As Isaiah said, well, I trust in horses and chariots, but it's better to trust in the Lord. And so they're gathered together there. Uh, in Revelation, it becomes this great place of slaughter. It's a terrible scene. It's, it's retribution. In essence, God's wrath is poured out. And that's why when someone says to me, well, I'm a mid-tribber, makes no sense whatsoever, because the whole purpose of the tribulation is to see the nation Israel come to its Messiah. That's the whole reason for it. it. It has basically almost no purpose beyond redeeming Israel, finally. Because God made a covenant with them. Amen? You will be my people, and I will be your God. And if you will turn from your sin, I will save you. He made the promise of salvation to them. Jesus comes into the world. The world receives him. The Jews reject him. But God doesn't welch on his promises because mankind rejects them. God keeps his promises. And so it is going to take this final time uh, described in, in the book of Revelation as the battle of Armageddon uh, to bring this to pass. In Bible times, the city of Megiddo commanded the entrances to the coastal plain, the plain of Echo, and to the valley of Jezreel. And so that was why those battles were fought principally in the city. But it is the valley uh, that is actually the, the place of this battle. And the reason is the number of people that are going to be involved in it. God's word says that he will bring them together into that valley. In Joel chapter 3, I will gather all the nations and bring them down. In verse 2 of the book of Joel, or verse 2 of chapter 3 of the book of Joel, I'll bring them into that valley, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, same valley, will I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations and divided my land. That's what God's word says about the last days. And so when people say Israel's not important, they do not know what their Bible says. Or they don't care what their Bible says. Or worse yet, they don't have a Bible. You see, the battle of Armageddon was actually foreshadowed there in the book of Judges. In chapter 5, it says the kings came, they fought the kings of Canaan and fought in, under Tanakh. And the waters of Megiddo were there and they could not be carried off for there was no silver and there was no plunder. In essence, they got there and God wasn't ready to deal with mankind and they lost. 
and they got there again, and God wasn't ready to deal with mankind, and they lost. And they got there again, and God was not ready to deal with mankind, and they lost. Because from God's perspective, the only battle that will ever be fought there with regard to the nation Israel that they will win is the battle of Armageddon. But God's going to fight that battle for them. Specifically, Jesus will fight that battle. That says in Joel chapter 3, verse 12 goes on to say, and it says, Let the nations be roused and let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the nations on every side and swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, and so great is their wickedness. Multitudes and multitudes is in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. He says, Bring it. Antichrist, bring your guys. King of the East, bring your guys. King of the North, bring your guys. King of the South, bring your guys. Whoever wants to get involved in this, get involved. Because we're going to settle this once and for all. My people are Israel. I have always loved them. I have always desired for them to come into a right relationship with me. It can only be done through the relationship through my son Jesus. And without him, there is no salvation. So if you want to keep pressing this issue, it's time for me to open up the wine press. You get in. I'm going to press you out. And so they enter into the battle of Armageddon. It's interesting that the, the name Jehoshaphat means God has judged, past tense. That he always knew that that valley would be a valley of judgment, and that he has judged the nations of the world, he continues to judge the nations of the world, and at the very last days he will finitely and finally judge the nations of the world. And when he does that, no amount of military might is going to win. Because we know who actually comes to fight this battle. You know him as his normal name, but he's also called the one who is faithful and true. Revelation 19, verse 11. And now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's why when you hear me say that the next time Jesus comes back, he's not going to be a happy camper. Uh, he, he's not. When Jesus comes back, he is coming back specifically to destroy the wickedness of the nations of the world. He's not coming back the second time as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. He will be back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he comes again, he's going to be coming to make war. He's not going to be coming to sit down on the Mount of Olives and speak again the Beatitudes he is coming to destroy wickedness on the face of the earth. He will have had enough. The winepress of his wrath will be full, and it is going to be poured out. His eyes, this is Jesus' eyes, by the way. So anytime someone says to you, well, you know, can't we all just get along? While we're in the age of grace, the answer is yes, there's grace for all. But once we reach this point, it's over. If you have not made a decision to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your neighbor as yourself, and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you are a walking dead person. Because Jesus is going to be very thorough, and we know that from this passage. His eyes were like flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and they are victor's crowns, by the way. They're, they're the crowns that say, okay, I won, and I'm coming back to take my prize. And he had a name that was written on him, but no one knew but himself. And that's because those who are now on the earth staring at him don't have any desire to know the name of the Lord. They're looking right at him and don't know who he is. They don't care. And we see this around us every day. We see people, I don't care. I don't, I don't want to know who God is. This is their end. When you read these words, this is, in essence, the end of everyone who will not bow their knee to Christ while they're still alive. Because your Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day everybody, and it won't matter whether you're in hell or in heaven, every knee will bow. The question is when. 
When are you going to bow? You going to bow before it's too late? I hope. Because once it's too late, it's too late. Once Jesus comes back, there isn't going to be any, oh, you know, I didn't really mean it. You're going to be forced to bow. In fact, you're going to sacrifice your eternity for that decision. And it says, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We already know who he is. But notice his robe is now dipped in blood. And it's not his own. He does not need to be crucified a second time. God will not let his son be crucified a second time. So much so that he has said you can either bow now under grace or you will bow under the sword later. Period. That's your options. That's why the the beautiful picture of the grace of God that we now have to offer people is so important because they can have the grace of God today. In this day, they can't have the grace of God. It's over. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So if you've ever missed being on horseback, a white horse, you've watched those TV commercials and you've seen that Guy or that gal just riding down the beach on the white horse gets better. You get to ride one from heaven. Back to this earth to fight alongside the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as he finally says, enough to sin. Hallelujah. Because that's the deal. He's promised that one day he's putting an end to sin and its consequence death forever. Right now, sin still reigns in our mortal bodies, but not this time. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. That doesn't sound like Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, does it? And yet it's the same Jesus. This is the other side of grace, family of God. That's why the book of Hebrews says what it says. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is that place that we should not ever entertain. How can I begin be revived again unto repentance, having tasted the good fruits of the work of the Spirit? That's a dangerous place. Because I guarantee you there are going to be millions, if not billions of people, who will have heard the word of the Lord and will still perish in this battle because they have failed to bow the knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in grace. They're going to take it to their grave. And when Jesus comes back, he's coming with a sharp sword. And with it, he should strike the nations. This, this is a horrible scene. The world has come. The world has said, we think we can beat you. The world has mounted one last attack. And the king of kings himself comes back to say, oh, no, you won't. You, you, you've, I've given you 2,000, probably close to 3,000 years of grace. Who knows how long it will be? Because they had it, fig- at least in the days of David, grace was very visible. It was made alive when Jesus came to the earth. And mankind said, we don't want it. We're going to keep doing our own thing. We're going to see how many more vile Super Bowl commercials we can come up with. Not enough filth left in the world. We need to have some more filth. We're going to kill some more innocent people. We're going to come up with new ways to kill each other. That's what we want to do. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. For he himself treads out the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of all Mighty God. Not a pretty picture. Now, I don't know what God can do when God is really mad. And I want you to, th- to think on this for a moment. 
Because we've never, ever on this earth seen God really mad. But he's been mad a couple of times. You can go visit the the ash heap, which is Sodom. You can look at the nations that no longer exist because they dared defy the true and the living God. There are no Philistines. Egypt came and went. Syria came and went. Babylonians came and went. The Greeks came and went. The Romans came and went. Everyone who's ever thumbed their nose at God has come and gone. And there's been some pretty horrific things that have happened in the passing of those great monumental civilizations of the world. In this time, the whole world joins hands as one and says, we are the world. We are the people. And we're going to sing a happy song for three and a half years. And then, now we think we can beat this this, this guy. And that's when God, in the fierceness of his wrath, sends Jesus to the earth on a white horse with a sword to kill the nations of the world. I don't particularly want to see that. He himself, with that fierceness, and he has on his robe and on his thigh. It was traditional at the time of the writing of this, when you were victorious, you would take your own knife and carve your, in essence, your victory slogan on your thigh. It was a sign of victory. The Romans did it. The Greeks did it. The Carthaginians did it. The Medes and the Persians all did it. It was just kind of like, I win. Notice what he carves. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. There's none like him. It's my Jesus. That's why it said back in chapter 14, verse 14 of that chapter, this was the harvest of the world. The Lord's coming back to harvest sin and iniquity. And it says there in verse 14 of chapter 14, And I looked, and there was before me a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head. I believe these two are the same thing, one spoken of after the fact, one spoken of before it happens. And the sharp sickle is in his hand. And the other angel came out of the temple and called out to him in a loud voice sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because it's time to reap, and it has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. And another angel came out of the temple of heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel who was in charge of fire, and it came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because the grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes, which is humanity, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Same thing that chapter 19 says. And they were trampled in the winepress outside of the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia or 180 miles, oddly enough, the exact length of the valley of Armageddon. Height of that initial flow of blood is astonishing. That's probably in a neighborhood of five to six feet and 180 miles long. And then it says in Revelation 19, verse 17, And I saw an angel standing on the sun who cried out with a loud voice to the birds of the air, Come and gather from the great supper of God, so that you may eat of the flesh of kings and of generals and of mighty men and horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Not a pretty picture, and the only way that could happen is if the massive number of dead were everywhere. It says that he'll pitch his royal tent, speaking of the Antichrist. Ultimately, his goal is to try and unify the world to come against God. And I would say to you, 
that mankind is ripe for that type of government right now. And I really don't believe it ever has been. You know, UN's been around for a while. The EU's been around for a while. China has been on the rise for a while. North Korea has been a land of nutbags for a while. (laughs) Russia has gone through multiple transitions to where they once again are rising as a czarist power. But they've done that many times. But never before in the course of human history has the entire world been so focused on seeing the nation Israel come into non-existence. Your Bible says that when they finally gather together under a solidified rulership, when they come together with a single currency, when they come together with a single religious view, that the Lord's going to say, enough. And he's going to stand in the gap. He won't need the might of the U.S. military. He will not need atomic weapons. He may well use them, but he sure won't need them. Because the one coming to do the harvest is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when God's had enough, I pity the nation that stands against the Lord. I've taken some pretty rough shots from people about my stance for Israel. Say, well, it's kind of a political issue. It's not a political issue. It is biblical suicide to be against the nation Israel. If you know your Bible, you know what it says in the end, then you know in the very last days Israel is God's focus. And to be against them is to be against him. There is no place for anyone to be against the nation Israel. It doesn't even make any sense in a geopolitical sense. Think about it. Why would anyone begrudge Israel their measly little parcel of the world? And yet the world seems to be against them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because the days are ahead. The Antichrist is certainly capable of stimulating that picture that we just read. God's going to keep his promise to the nation Israel. Romans chapter 11, and it says there in verse 25, Paul the Apostle speaking, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the winepress of God's wrath is filled up. Until the Gentile nations of the world have had their bidding and had their due and had their go at the nation Israel. That blindness in in part comes from God as the age of grace is extended day by day to God knows how long. But it goes on to say, and so all Israel will be Saved. In other words, Israel will be known as we are now as a Christian nation. doesn't mean every individual Israeli because that would take away the freedom of choice. But it means that by and large, all Jewish people will come to know Jesus Christ as Messiah. Why? Because it was prophesied that a deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away all ungodliness from Jacob For this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. That can only happen if they come to Christ. And right now that isn't going to happen as long as the nations of the world keep doing what they're doing. And Israel has to keep defending itself and is successful itself. It will only happen when the nations of the world come against them in such a way it takes God to defend them. Might be coming to an internet news source near you tomorrow. Amen? Let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Father God, we declare and announce our allegiance to you and consequently for the people of Israel. And God, we pray for the nation Israel. We ask that you would be their strength and shield and fortress. 
their strong tower. You are their defense, their only defense. God, they may be trusting in the Iron Dome or Patriot missiles today, but there will come a time when the only thing that will save them is the great I Am, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so, Lord, we rest and trust in that, and we pray for your peace. Lord, we know that that will come when the Prince of Peace comes. And so we pray that you defend the innocent all over the Middle East, Lord, for those innocent Arabs, for those Arab Christians. Now we pray that you would be their fortress and their rock. And we pray that many would be saved. We're not told how many Arabs, how many Muslims, when they see this begin to unfold, realize that they believed a lie. But, Lord, we would ask that you would begin that process even now. We pray for the church in Iran, Lord, as my... My brother Chet just came back from there, God, and told of the hundreds of Christians that he met in Tehran that that don't have a place to meet. They're not allowed to even speak of their faith publicly. God, strengthen them for the days that lie ahead. God, we thank you that you told us what the end would be before it ever happens. We pray that you'd strengthen our faith because of it, cause us to lean on you, trust you, And in all things, God, help us to be the bearers of the message of the good news of the gospel. That to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to put you in right standing with God the Father. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time tonight. We bless you. We give you all glory and honor and praise. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray these things. Amen.